Luke chapter 2, and we'll commence our reading there at verse 25. Hear once again the word of our God. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then took he him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace, according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. And Simeon blessed them, said unto Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Yea, a sword shall also pierce through thy own soul also, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Thus far, the reading of God's word, and indeed may he bless it to us this morning. As we've spent now a considerable amount of time in the Gospels, one recurring theme that we've encountered, I think, time and again, is that the writers writing as inspired historians set before us this principal idea that Christ and his Gospel upset worldly expectations and wisdom. This is the prevailing theme that we've seen time and time again. In fact, it's not only the case that it was for unbelievers an upsetting, extraordinary thing for Christ to come in the way that it was, but but he remembers Zacharias, that Christ would come in this declining age, that Christ would come in these times. Even for a believing Zacharias, the coming of Christ was in some sense upsetting. It was in some sense surprising. And when we look at our text this morning, it's important to keep that before us. The Christ who comes to us in this text comes very contrary to the wisdom of this world. Comes very contrary to the inclinations of the flesh. And here we have that in the case of Simeon. You look at this moment, and we see here Simeon really coming off the stage. He'll no longer be in our focus. And in many ways, he's not in our focus even in our text this morning. You remember before, we, t- we spent several weeks looking at the man and his confession of faith. Now we come in verses 33 to 35, his prophecy. We don't look at Simeon the man so much anymore, but Simeon as he speaks under divine inspiration of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the Christ whom Simeon beholds, whom Simeon proclaims with a spirit of prophecy. 
I'd have you note just a few things before we see what he says. First of all, the 33rd verse. You have here the words, Joseph and his mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. Now, beloved, it's important for us to remember that Joseph and Mary have already been presented to us as believing souls. These are those who have already taken hold of Jesus Christ by faith. And so when we look at that word marvel, it's it's important for us to understand this is not shock. This is not really surprise. We should see the word marvel, as it's used throughout the scriptures, more in its reverential sense. Here they, they find a godly man, a rare man in Jerusalem, saying marvelous things about Jesus Christ. And the gospel writer then tells us they hear these things with the utmost solemnity, with a believing reverence, a believing solemnity. Certainly is a mark for us, isn't it? When we hear Christ proclaimed, if we are a believing people, it requires the utmost solemnity on our part. But as we come then to the prophecy itself, verses 34 and 35, you'll see here that Simeon adds quite, quite a lot, really, to what he said before. He says that this child, the Lord Jesus Christ, is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. The word there, set, in our text, is the same word that you would describe uh, the placing of any object. In the scriptures, it's the idea of laying a foundation so one could build upon it. It's used in, of course, Matthew's gospel to describe the axe being laid against the root of the tree. The idea is an object is being placed. The object itself is passive. It's placed there for a particular purpose. And now what do we find? Well, this object, which is nothing else, no one else than the Lord Jesus Christ, is set, placed for the fall of many. The word there, fall, is the idea, the collapse of a house, the destruction of a kingdom. This is not the kind of fall where, where one would simply stumble and recover themselves. This is an utter destruction. In fact, the word is translated elsewhere simply as that, as destruction. Christ is set for the destruction of many. And then note what he says elsewhere. He says, rising again. That word literally translated elsewhere is the word resurrection. He is set for the destruction and the resurrection of many in Israel. Now, friend, you find here division, don't you? Christ is set. Christ is placed. But as, as Simeon speaks in the spirit of prophecy, he says, as Christ is placed... He will be destruction for some and resurrection to others. But then take the next part of the prophecy. This kind of division between the many continues. This Christ will be a sign which shall be spoken against. The word sign there is the idea of a mark or or, or even a token. And the word spoken against there is the idea of being rejected, being derided, ridiculed. And so Simeon tells us that this Christ will be a sign that will be rejected, will be derided. And of course we are thinking here, ultimately, of the Lord Jesus Christ at the zenith of his humiliation, at the apex of the rejection that he knew knew in this world. 
But then Simeon adds this curious parenthesis. A sword, he says to Mary, shall pierce thy own soul also. Which, holding that together with what's gone before, it really is something like this. Mary, in his rejection, its culmination, your heart also will be pierced, will be grieved. And so we have two things. First of all, the division. Some will be destroyed, others resurrected. And then we find this, that Christ will be derided, rejected by some, and that Mary herself will be grieved. But then you have in the very conclusion, after the parenthesis, these words, the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. What's striking is, Simeon doesn't say, not that he may reveal, but more like this, but that in response to him, the inward dispositions of men will be revealed. This stone that has been set, says Simeon, will in some way reveal the inmost disposition, the secret parts of man's heart. Now, beloved, as we take this text as a whole this morning, I think it's important for us to begin at this by simply saying that this is a deep text. This is a profound text that deals with issues that we could spend many Lord's Days meditating on. Because really, as you hold all that we've said together, the text reads something like this, that this child is placed for the destruction and resurrection of many in Israel, a sign that will be rejected and derided. And in their malice against him, a sword will pierce your heart also, and the secret inclinations of men will be revealed in their responses to him. It's a staggering prophecy. And it's staggering, perhaps, in some sense, because of how it compares with what's gone before. You remember how Simeon, in verses 30 to 32, set Christ before us. As as he confesses his faith and supplies for us a description of why he is so so willing to die, sees, sees death as a release and expects peace to be attended with it. You remember how he describes Christ. Christ there is described as consolation, light, beauty. But then take our text this morning. Christ is the occasion of division, derision, and the disclosure of men's inmost thoughts. It's a staggering thing, isn't it, when you compare those two texts? Christ is set forward in such glorious terms in the first case. In the second case, you see here that Christ becomes an occasion for men's destruction. What do we make of this? Why these two almost antithetical ideas? Well, friend, what you're reminded here is that Christ is the consolation of true Israel. He is consolation indeed. He is the one that Simeon was promised that he would see before he saw death. He is the consolation of Israel, but it's true Israel and true true Israel alone that he is salvation for. But what Simeon also sets before us too is this idea that this light and this beauty that Christ is Well, beloved, it is at war with darkness, and it will expose 
the darkness. He is salvation for his people, but he is the avowed enemy, and he is also the great exposer of darkness. And so, friend, when we look at verses 30 to 32, what we find here is that Christ would be all of those things for his people through our text, verses 33 to 35. He would be the consolation, he would be the light and the beauty of his people as he walked through the humiliation that Simeon here describes for us in our text this morning. The sense is this. Contrary, perhaps, to the expectation of the the godly, contrary, perhaps, to the expectation, of course, even of the world, Christ would be salvation through a veil of tears and derision and rejection. Friends, as we look at this text, too, as we come to our main theme, we have here some striking thoughts. First of all, the revelation of Christ. As you look at this, you see that his ministry will also involve this great humiliation that Simeon sets before us. But as you look at Christ's enemies, Simeon says something of them as well. He says much of Christ, as he has in the previous verses, but but now he speaks of Christ's enemies, and he says they will fall. They will be destroyed. And then he comes to his own people, Mary being a representative case. They will sorrow, but they also will be resurrected. She will be grieved, but as she is numbered among those who believe, she too will rise again. She will be resurrected. Now, beloved, what do we make of all of this? Holding all of these things together, our theme this morning is just this, that Christ's enemies are destroyed by him as believers triumph with him. Christ's enemies are destroyed by him as believers triumph with him. And I want us to see that under three headings. The destruction that this text sets before us, uh, the dejection that is promised to God's people, and also the deliverance that Christ is promised to bring to the same. So take first of all the destruction. As we're told here, Christ is set for the fall. The word there, set, as I've said before you, is said to you already, is the idea of an object being placed. Or you could even say something that has been ordained. The word is used like that elsewhere in the New Testament. And so the sense is Christ is set apart. He is ordained. And what is he ordained for? He's ordained for the destruction of many. The sense that Simeon puts upon this idea is that this aspect of his office is integral to his calling. Christ indeed is set for, in his office, he is ordained for the destruction of many. And that might perhaps prompt a question. How can that be? When you think about the text of scripture, there are others that come to mind that almost seem in tension with this. Christ says, of course, in John's gospel, I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Or take Luke's gospel The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. How do we reconcile those texts with ours this morning? 
Where Simeon says he has indeed been set, even ordained for the destruction of many. And yet Christ himself later on says, I've come not to destroy, not to judge. Friend, the idea I think is fairly simple. What you have here is Christ become the occasion of stumbling. The occasion of destruction in his office. If you will, this destruction that's in view in Simeon's case is accidental, not essential to his calling here. Their destruction that Simeon has in view here is a destruction that they, if you like, can only blame their unbelief for. They stumble upon it rather than build upon it. The aspect that Simeon emphasizes here is that this is the stone. In fact, I believe we should see those texts lying behind ours this morning. He is the stone that is set. Some will stumble upon it. Others will build upon it. But those who stumble will indeed be destroyed. And beloved, the theme that we learn from this is very basic. Men are indeed destroyed by their rejection of Christ. Men are indeed destroyed by their rejection of Christ. I suppose that's a simple theme this morning. It's a theme that you and I are quite accustomed to. If you will not believe, you certainly shall not be established, says Isaiah to Ahaz. That, of course, is said to any sinner as the gospel is preached. If you will not believe, Christ will not be salvation to you. But friend, there's something quite profound that underlies that. And this is perhaps really the the idea that Simeon sets before us this morning. The idea is, is that Christ now is at the center of the moral universe. Christ is at the center of all of those who will stand before God one day. And they will stand as they are, they will stand before God according to their relationship with Christ. Friend, take this just for a moment. If we could remove ourselves from our text and think just about the fall. If there was no plan of redemption, if, if after Adam's transgression, that was it, there would be no question. All of mankind would be under condemnation and would, of course, come under eternal wrath. All mankind would be intimately related to Adam and on the basis of that relationship would be certainly destroyed. But you see, now the question comes in when redemption is offered in Christ. Which Adam are you related to? Naturally, we're all to Adam the first. But you see, now centrally, Christ takes the stage. How do you stand in relation to this Christ? How do you stand in relation to this second Adam? You will be judged according to that relationship. If you have rejected Christ, you are still an Adam the first, still under the wrath of God, and to eternal destruction you'll be sent. But if you stand in Adam the second, well, beloved, the promises that we'll look at in just a few moments' time are yours. Christ is the center then, now of all human history. He asks men, what have you done with Christ? But even take what you have in the very end of our text, verse 35. 
The centrality of Christ becomes perhaps even more pronounced. The thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. The sense is that in Christ's coming, mankind is set before us naked. The heart of man is stripped bare. His his veneer of self-righteousness is stripped away. And we see really what's in man. And all because of Christ. Yes, man in his wickedness, of course, reveals what lies within him. But Simeon says in a very special sense, all men are really revealed as they stand in some relation to this Christ. And so that question that Christ asks in the gospel is the perennial question, isn't it? What think ye of Christ? This Christ who is set for the destruction of those who will not believe. This Christ who reveals the inmost parts of men. What do you think of him this morning? You see, Simeon sets before us a Christ who reveals the darkness within. And also men stumble upon them in their unbelief and to their destruction. And so, beloved, that text in John 3 makes all of the sense in the world, doesn't it? He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. It's not the case in Simeon's words that, that they will be stumbling for an eternity. It's the case that they would stumble upon Christ in this life. They would stumble in this life. Seal their destruction in this life. And then for an eternity, suffer that eternal torment. But the wrath of God would abide on them in the present. Beloved, that is the case of every unbeliever. Those who are outside of Christ who find him a stumbling block. Note the words of Christ. He is presently a stumbling block to them because they are presently abiding on God's wrath. Even the believer is called, first of all, a child of God's wrath before conversion. So it is with everyone who does not take hold of Christ in the present. Beloved, remember that. For those who reject Christ, they are presently stumbling. They are presently liable, presently actually abiding under the wrath of God. But how do we see this today? Friend, I would submit to you in two ways. We see the very thing that Simeon prophesies in our own lands. I'll deal this morning only with enlightened lands. That's lands that have enjoyed the light of the gospel for some time. Take, friend, the malice that you see now lodged against the gospel in our lands, in lands that were once blessed with the powerful preaching of it. What does that teach you? Friend, you should see here not just, you should not see here purely the, the, the evolution of a, of a people that had become increasingly secular, as though it were impersonal of itself. This is very personal. What, what, what the apostle says of the Jews in his day, that they found Christ a stumbling block. The Jews who had the scriptures set before them, had the promise of the gospel set before them time and again, even in the ordinances. 
To them, Christ was a stumbling block. In spite of all of their enlightenment, the malice that you see there is precisely what Simeon promised. And the malice that was in that first century among the Jews is certainly in the 21st century among enlightened people in the West. The unbelief that we see around us is the stumbling that you see even in our text this morning. Friend, remember that. When you hear in the news, when you look through the school curriculum, when you hear conversations on the street, this text should come to mind. Christ was set for the destruction of many. Christ would still and is still a stumbling block for those who once heard the gospel and now, now rejected. But even go a step further. Note, friend, how united the opposition is today against Christ. It's a united opposition in the face of so many other forms of division. Today, the world can hardly rally around a single idea or a single theme, but they're united in this. They will not have Christ rule over them. Does that not surprise you? The world cannot agree hardly on anything. The nations are at war over all kinds of disagreements. But on this they speak in unison. They will not have Christ. It's the very same thing you have in Psalm 2. Kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. That The word there, take counsel, is to be in leagued together. Friend, whenever you see a, a purely universal rejection of Christ at the highest level, are we so unthinking as to see in that moment how clearly, how clearly this testifies to the truth of our text this morning? Christ indeed is set for the destruction of many. He is indeed that stone upon which unbelievers stumble. And they stumble now, friend. They stumble now over him. In our text, Christ is presented as being passive. He is that object that is placed. But you remember how Christ himself applies this idea. One day Christ will not be that stone upon which they stumble. He will be that stone which grinds them to powder. They stumble now in a time of forbearance. They stumble now in a time of patience. Now when mercy is still tendered. But when Christ comes to grind them to powder, friend, there will be no mercy, no forbearance found. I just remind you, friend, that this text, as Simeon sets before us, is very personal. They take offense at Christ, not at an idea, not at a theme, not at a principle. Simeon presents their stumbling as stumbling upon a person. And friend, when you and I see unbelief in our realm, we need to understand that that is very personal. Let all of the unbelievers claim that their, their, their rejection is purely intellectual, sterile in that sense. It's not. They stumble personally over Jesus Christ. Their rejection of him is personal. Their rebellion against him is personal. It is against the person of Christ, the fullest revelation of our God.
that they stumble over. And remember, beloved, it is always violent. The unbeliever today claims that it is Christianity that has brought violence into the West. But friends, see the malice that's around us. How violently do they rage against him? How violently do they stumble over him? Beloved, if that's the unbeliever, what do we say of the Christian? It brings us to our second heading this morning, and that is dejection. The dejection in this text. We're told here that this Christ will be a sign which shall be spoken against. That is a sign which will be rejected and derided. And we know, of course, that throughout Christ's ministry, that that was certainly a reality. Christ came to his people, and as you have in Matthew 11, he came and still there was no response. They, they, They were quite pleased to do the opposite of all that he and John the Baptist called them to. But, beloved, as we look at this text, we should have in mind not just those three years, but really the climax, the apex of that rejection. That moment whenever they would cry, crucify him. His blood be on us and on our children. That moment when Zion would ring loud with the words, we have no king but Caesar. That moment that Christ describes as the unbeliever's hour and power of darkness. Then, in that moment, the climax of this rejection, the climax of this stumbling, Mary is told this, a sword shall pierce thy own soul also. Which, read in context with this interpretation, is something like this, his sorrow will be greater of a different sort, but you too will mourn. And so we think of Christ at the foot, we think of Christ there and his mother Mary standing at the foot of the cross. And of course we think of, I think perhaps most often, of of the kind of sorrow that she must have felt as she saw Christ, her firstborn, her son, crucified. And of course there's a sense in which that's that's a legitimate way to take our text this morning. But I would suggest to you that that's not the only way, and I'd even say you a step further, that's not the primary way we should see the text. You see, beloved, Mary is presented to us in Luke 1 and in Luke 2, always as a believer. Not just as the mother of Christ, but really as one who looked to Christ by faith. We can't miss that. As precious as Christ was to Mary as her son, more precious was Christ to her as her Savior. And so, beloved, as we look at this text, we can't miss that. Uh, This text is too often distorted, I think, by those who describe much to Mary. Mary is a believer, one who has taken hold of Christ by faith. And so what Simeon describes for us in this text is this, the sorrow that Mary would have, this believer would have, as she watched Christ ridiculed, derided, by those whom he was sent to preach to. And friend, that allows us then to make a very basic application to ourselves, doesn't it? Mary possessed the same faith 
She possessed the same love for Christ that believers have. And friend, she had the same occasion, that same occasion for her sorrow in the malice of the world against Christ. Maybe in a different manifestation, of course. But it was still that same hatred for Christ that Mary saw, that believers today behold. So what do we make of this? Well, beloved, it's just this, that believers lament the world's rejection of Christ. A sword indeed pierces their soul also when they see the one whom they believe in, the one whom they take above all things, when they see him derided. This is, a, this is occasion of grief to them. I, I would say only a few, a few things to this point. I want you to notice, friend, how, how the text describes Mary to us here. This morning believer. She's not a complainer. She's not one who takes the malice that the world heaps upon Christ and, and, and takes it as something merely to talk about. She's not a gossiper. She's not one here who is described simply who goes around and tells in dolorous tones the sins of the world as they reject Christ. She's described as one who has been cut to the inmost part of her being with sorrow at this rejection. I think we miss this, don't we, too often. Oh, beloved, in our circles we will speak much, shaking our head often at the wickedness that we see around us. We will complain at great lengths about how far our lands have drifted from the glory they once possessed when our people were once called a people of the book. But I wonder, is our heart cut? Is our heart cut by these things? Or is the inmost part of our being touched with sorrow when we reflect on this malice? For Mary, one who believed, this is precisely how Simeon describes it, She's one who is cut to the heart. Beloved, that's to describe us. I mean, take the psalmist just for an example. Take Psalm 119. Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. This is the the heart cry of a believer. When he looks at the world around him and he sees the malice that they have for God, rivers of water run down their faces. It's not just that they complain. It's not just that they speak and shake their heads of the wickedness they see around them. They're really cut to the heart by these things. When they see the cause and the interest of Christ derided in their land, it grieves them, really. As though a sword had pierced them. Beloved, this this then is a very challenging text, isn't it? Because it asks us what grieves us this morning. What causes you to weep? I read to you from Psalm 119. You remember in our time in that psalm, how many physical afflictions the psalmist knew. You remember how many times he faced persecution himself. How many times he found all kinds of ailments at at the right hand and at the left hand. And yet what is the cause? The prevailing cause 
It leads tears to run down his face. It's the malice of the world against his God. Beloved, this, this does ask us that question, why do we weep today? We have many occasions, don't we, to be cut to the heart. The question is, are we? When we see Christ still personally reviled, when we see Christ still hated with that self-same hatred, that led the Jews and the Romans in the first century to crucify him. Does a sword pierce your heart also? You remember Uriah. When David was tempting him to go back to his house, his response was this. Shall I go into mine own house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As thou livest and as thy soul liveth, I will not do this thing. Why? Because the cause of God was in battle. Uriah would take no comfort to himself as the cause of his God was on the field of war. He would take no comfort to himself because his primary interest was this, the interests of God. Beloved, this requires much of us. For really to be people who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we are then to be a mourning people in an age such as ours, not willing to be comforted or distracted by other things, but really and deeply grieved at the world's rejection of our Savior. But thirdly and finally, you find here the deliverance that is set for God's people. He is set, that is, Christ is set, ordained for the destruction and for the resurrection of many in Israel. It's a striking, striking text. It's striking for a few reasons. First of all, beloved, we can't speak meaningfully of the resurrection of saints without thinking also and really primarily of the resurrection of Christ. There is no resurrection hoped for by the godly apart from Christ's. And so in this text, really, not only is it the case that you have the resurrection of God's people in view, but you have its cause in view, which is the resurrection of Christ himself. Christ's resurrection is presupposed. And so then, in his resurrection, his people's is secured. The idea is this, that as Simeon sets before us the rejection of the world, sets before us, even in these veiled terms, the crucifixion of Christ, he also has in view the success of the Redeemer. He has in view the idea that Christ indeed will be resurrected so as to procure the resurrection of his own. I also want you to notice the connection. Christ and his people in this text go together from mourning to triumph. Note that. Christ himself will be derided. Christ himself will enter into great humiliation. And his people will sorrow. They will be a mourning people. But in our text, you have this wonderful connection that holds out to us union with Christ. That as Christ and his people together mourn, they two together 
will be raised again. They will mourn together and they will triumph together. And beloved, as we look at this text this morning, it should remind us, shouldn't it, what you have in the eighth of Romans. If so be that we suffer with him, says the apostle, we may be also glorified together. The idea is is that those who are united to the Lord Jesus Christ in this life are united to a man of sorrows. As the world rejects Christ, as they walk with him in this valley of tears, they're also promised, says the apostle, that they together will be raised. Christ, the first fruits, 1 Corinthians 15. His believers following thereafter. And beloved, note that it is his office to do this. He's been set, he's been appointed for the resurrection of his people. And so take Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Note what the apostles, sorry, what the prophet says there. He says, Christ has been appointed to what office? That he might come to the mourners in Zion. By the way, the very people that we just described, the people, the believers who look to Christ and who see his rejection by the world and are grieved at it, who take the cause of Christ as their most precious thing to them and are grieved whenever it's reviled by men. These ones... These ones, says the prophet, Christ has been sent to. And note what he's been sent to do. To give them beauty for ashes. To exchange their mourning for oil of joy. To exchange their spirit of heaviness for the garment of praise. It's Christ's calling to do this very work. To take the mourners in Zion who bear the cross presently and really to provide them here to come with all of those blessed things that he's purchased at his own cost. It's his calling, it is his office to do this. And friend, as he is the head of the body, all of his members will be brought to him to enjoy these blessed things. Even in this text, friend, you see the glory. Yes, you see the difficulty of union with Christ. To be united with Christ is to have a sword pierce your heart also. But you see also the blessedness. Real resurrection. Real deliverance. Lord, if you are in Christ this morning, this holds out a comfort to us, especially on the Sabbath morning. Christian, as real as this morning is, as real as this morning is, in which you celebrate Christ's resurrection, so real will be that morning when you enjoy yours at last. Remember that. Beloved, you and I, we woke this morning another Lord's Day, a day in which we celebrate Christ's resurrection. As real as this morning is, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, So real will be that resurrection morning when our text is fulfilled.
when at last his people are raised unto glory. And it does beg the question, in that moment, what will you think of your present unbelief? Your present worldliness? You see, friend, all of those things will fade away, won't they, for the believer? Really, with a sense of of embarrassment, we would think of those things. So think of them now. Here you celebrate Christ's resurrection that is the first fruits of your own. Here we celebrate the fact that Christ has indeed been raised again. And so as he is ordained to be, so he will in fact bring resurrection to all his members. And so why would we be an unbelieving people? Why would we be a people who are still so inclined to the world? As we close, friend, I would remind you that this text, of course, is about Christ. Both about the rejection of him and also union with him. And it leads us to that question, which are we this morning? And to answer that question, friend, I would submit to you that there are two tests that come to us directly from our text. The first is, what are Christ's interests to you? What are Christ's interests to you this morning? Is it nothing to you really? Does it not excite anything in your own affections to see the world hate him? To see the world still revile him? Does it not grieve you? Does it not put a sword to the inmost part of your heart? Well then, friend, don't expect to be raised with him. He came to comfort those who mourn in Zion, who really, from the heart, have taken Christ's cause, espoused it as their own, and who, with a warm heart, look on these things. But secondly, do you believe? Are you one who stumbles at Christ? Are you one who really believes that he is his people's resurrection? That he indeed will raise all of those who are united to him? Beloved, if you have, if you have taken hold of Christ in this way, remember this. When we see the malice of the world around us, to quote James Rennick, the more Christ is despised and rejected by men, the more to be beloved by his own. Use the malice of the world around you as a catalyst for your love to Christ. If they hate him so much, be resolved to love him all the more. And friend, of course, the calling in this text is this. Take hold of him while he is offered. If you are not in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are not one who takes his cause, if you're not one, who from the heart is touched by the world's rejection of him. And friend, take hold of him now, before the stone comes to grind. Take hold of him now, as now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Take hold of Christ. Amen.